Madam Clerk. Oral questions by members? Member for Surrey South. Mr. Speaker, this NDP government's sole focus on publicly supplied addictive drugs and decriminalizing hard drugs is not going to end well. There are specific obligations from last year's letter of requirements from the federal government that have not been met. No definable metrics, no plan for public safety, no timely access to treatment. This is what the letter says, and I quote, as noted in the request, the province will ensure that individuals who desire treatment or other supports can access them when needed, end quote. To the Premier, why is he proceeding with the decriminalization of dangerous drugs like crystal meth, heroin, cocaine, and fentanyl without first ensuring timely access to treatment and recovery as was promised? Premier. Speaker, and thank you to the member uh, for the question on an issue of mental health, addiction, the toxic drug crisis that we're facing. I know it's front of mind for members uh, across this chamber. Uh, I know that because uh, we worked very closely together on a cross-party parliamentary committee on this very issue. And uh, the member raises issues of decriminalization and safe supply. And the whole goal of those initiatives, the reason why it was supported by both parties, why it continues to be, is to keep people alive so that they have the opportunity to get into treatment. And when I meet with parents who have lost children, when I meet with a spouse who's lost a partner to overdose, um, they wish that that person was still with them and, uh, so that they could have that opportunity to get into treatment. Uh, and it is vital, I agree with the member, it is vital that we have a public network of treatment that's available for people on demand across the province. That's what we're building. That's what we're building, uh, and we're following the recommendations from the old party committee on that. Uh, 360 adult and youth treatment beds, more in development, and focusing on youth in particular, because if you can intervene early when someone's struggling with addiction, you can save them from a lifetime of pain. Uh, and, uh, and I'm really, um, first of all, encouraged by the fact that the opposition is raising this as an issue that they are embracing this idea that government should be funding public treatment. Uh, I'm glad that they're supporting that, uh, and I encourage them, them to continue pushing in that direction. We all need uh, to work together on this important issue. Sorry, so supplemental. Uh, Mr. Speaker, I'm glad to hear the Premier acknowledge that these things are still uh, underway and still being worked on, and acknowledging, in fact, that they didn't have the work completed prior to the uh, decriminalization. And the NDP government has not only failed to do the work necessary prior to the implementation of this experiment policy, but British Columbians have good reason to be skeptical of this Premier when it comes to the decriminalization of hard drugs like heroin, meth, fentanyl, and cocaine. Because under this NDP government's watch, High school students are accessing addictive hard drugs from drug vending machines in Vancouver, a process called diversion. Users of the so-called Safe Supply Pilot Project are selling their drugs to teenagers so they can buy other products off the street. 
The NDP government has failed to provide oversight to make sure that addictive drugs don't get diverted to teenagers. So how can families trust this Premier to protect Members. youth while decriminalizing fentanyl, crystal meth, given the NDP government has taken such a lax approach to publicly supplied, highly addictive drugs being resold to teenagers? Premier. Well, thank you uh, very much, uh, Honourable Chair. Uh, the member knows the reason why every member of this place uh, came together through the all-party committee and supported initiatives around safe supply and decriminalization is to give a chance to get that healthcare worker, you know, when a, when a mom's got a kid struggling with addiction, to get a healthcare worker between that kid and a predatory drug dealer, uh, to give that kid the opportunity to remove that stigma, to have that conversation with a parent, look, I'm struggling with addiction. That's the reason why there is support across the chamber, why there is support, at least as far as I understand, across the chamber for these kinds of interventions, to keep people alive, to have the conversations about treatment. Now, I know the member knows uh, our government's investment in the foundry system, which uh, you know, was something that I believe started under the opposition's government. We believe in that kind of intervention. We, I think we uh, are on the verge of opening up to 24 of those now uh, and, uh, and doubling the number of beds uh, for youth treatment. And uh, you know, the, the critical piece here uh, is around making sure that that treatment is available for people who are working with St. Paul's Hospital, Providence Healthcare for people who show up in an emergency room after overdosing, that they can go direct into detox, direct from detox into treatment, all on the same site. So there's not even an opportunity to lose that person in a cab on the way to a treatment facility. These are the kinds of innovative uh, initiatives uh, that we are exploring and working on and delivering across the province. Uh, outpatient withdrawal management, multiple new locations in the interior. New treatment and stabilization beds in Kamloops, Kelowna and Lillooet. New sobering and assessment services in Prince George and Nanaimo. I accept the member's critique. We got more to do. Um, but I think it's vital that we all recognize the work that we need to do together on this incredibly sensitive issue for British Columbians, where they want us to support those folks struggling with addiction to keep them alive and get them into treatment. Member for West Vancouver, Capilano. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, what I just understood the Premier to say is that. Uh, these beds and these supports uh, are being explored and they're being worked on. In the federal letter of requirements, uh, there is an obligation to have these recovery beds and treatments available at the same time as decriminalization has come in, and I am hearing that that is actually not what is happening. Um, there is also an obligation to have done a comprehensive public education plan, particularly for youth. But instead, Mr. Speaker, of an awareness campaign that illicit drugs are harmful and addictive, the NDP are letting their allies do that public education. So the former employer of the Premier, Mr. Speaker, Pivot, Pivot Legal, and the Vancouver Area Network of Drug Users, are even actively working to discourage people, to discourage people from seeking treatment. Uh, the former, um, so a quote from uh, Van Du, quote, police should not be handing out health information cards. The only role police should play in decrim is to stand down, unquote. So this question is to the Premier. Why is it 
that the only information about decriminalization and its harm, or not harm in the case of Vandu and Pivot Legal, why is that information and communication only coming from Vandu and Pivot Legal instead of public safety information coming from this NDP government? Minister of Mental Health and Addictions. Uh, thank, thank you very much, Honourable Speaker, and thank you uh, very much to the member uh, for the question. Uh, however, the supposition in the question is just simply wrong. Uh, with respect to the, uh, the requirements that Health Canada set down in the application uh, that we made for exemption, an application that we made um, uh, in, in collaboration, that was developed in collaboration with frontline law enforcement, with people with lived experience, with public health, with frontline care providers, uh, we, um, who all stood together with us um, as we made the announcement two weeks ago, um, uh, issues with respect to how we communicate the intention of this have been very broadly discussed um, across all of those uh, all of those uh, all of those partner groups, and we are working with school districts, with youth or with uh, youth-focused organizations, which for, through our youth uh, mental health uh, uh, support organizations such as uh, such as Foundry, such as ICY teams, to ensure that um, those uh, important frontline. Um, folks who work directly with kids understand um, what the intent is. We have a very robust curriculum in our uh, in our K to 12 system with respect to mental health and uh, and substance use, and those are the primary mechanisms we're relying on to communicate this very important information uh, for children and youth. Member supplemental. Uh, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, well, frankly, that answer is just not good enough. Um, the province has committed, and, and I'm reading directly from the, uh, from the letter of requirements, has committed to ensure that individuals who desire treatment or other supports can access them when needed. So the words I'm hearing are, it's in process, we're doing it, we're exploring it. That is not doing it when needed at the same time that decriminalization is happening. Um, one year after the federal requirements were issued, uh, these things should, have, sh should be up and, and running. The letter of requirements also calls for a comprehensive consultation with communities, but instead, communities are being forced to act on their own when it comes to public safety. Campbell River has passed a bylaw to give enforcement tools to address the use of open hard drugs like heroin, meth, fentanyl and cocaine in public areas. Councillor Ben Lanyon says, quote, the need for this is in direct response to the unknowns that we're facing, unquote. So to the Premier, why are communities like Campbell River being left on their own to manage the impact of open drug use in their parks and their public areas? Minister. Uh, thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. Uh, the core planning table that met for years leading up to the, uh, uh, to the application for, uh, for the exemption included the BC Union of, of um, Municipalities, and we've been working very closely with our partners in municipalities with respect to the impacts um, in communities. I understand that there are some municipalities who uh, have a, who are, have taken particular 
um, you know, what, what they view as preventative measures, not that there are particular issues they're dealing with that they're faced with right now, um, but pro uh, what they view as preventative uh, uh, measures to, um, uh, to uh, you know, to, 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 to look at what they think may, may be problems down, down the road. But I, I would say that our conversations with municipalities have been very much about, again, how we need to pull together as communities to support individuals who are in crisis, to support individuals who need access to care and support. And that is why we've been working with 9,000 frontline police officers to ensure that they uh, have training and education and skills development with respect to what decriminalization means, what its intended purpose is, the role of reducing stigma and fear, which we heard so eloquently from people with lived experience, from people who have lost loved ones to the toxic poisoning drug crisis, uh, who want, who, who again, would, would much prefer that their loved one were alive to be able to access care and support. Uh, that is the purpose of decriminalization. That is the purpose of the work we're doing with all of our partners, including municipalities. And we're going to be, be there to work with you, municipalities through whatever issues sort of arise um, on the ground for them. But this, again, is something that we are working together with all of our partners to work through, and that's the work we'll continue to do. House Leader of the Third Party. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Through you to the Minister of Energy, Mines, and Low Carbon Innovation. The Minister's uh, first few weeks on the job, how would the Minister characterize the regulation and enforcement of environmental infractions of energy projects in British Columbia? Minister of Environment. Thank you very much, uh, Honourable Speaker. Uh, uh, the member has asked a, uh, a very general uh, question, so it's uh, hard to know exactly uh, where the member uh, wants to focus the answer. But what I would say is, there are a number of agencies who have distinct and outlined responsibilities for enforcement of regulations, conditions on permits. There are administrative procedures and administrative fairness in each regime. There is an escalating pattern of, uh, of uh, warnings, of, of uh, penalties, of orders that uh, precede penalties, and they are applied in a escalating manner. Member Supplemental. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Speaker. Um, the construction of the uh, CGL pipeline continues to cause damage, uh, Mr. Speaker, to sensitive habitat and cultural sites in northern British Columbia. Uh, last month, a dam at the Chlor River ruptured, uh, damaging critical salmon and steelhead uh, habitats. This was uh, part of the reason why I asked the question to the Ministry of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation. It's my understanding it's actually the BC Oil and Gas Commission that um, is responsible for uh, the regulation of water crossings. The TAI reported, quote, the Oil and Gas Commission initially cleared the pipeline builder of any wrongdoing, but added that it had not inspected the site uh, in person, end quote. Uh, the breach of the Chlor River is not an isolated incident. To date, the CGL pipeline has fi been fined uh, three times. It's had 37 warnings. It's had 17 orders uh, for noncompliance uh, related to erosion and sediment control. There doesn't appear to be any amount of damage uh, that uh, can happen, and this government will hold the company uh, accountable. This uh, NDP government is appearing more and more to be captured by industry. In fact, the Department of Fisheries and Oceans, uh, the, federal, uh, enforce, or the federal body, uh, is not enforcing there because uh, they basically are saying that they're relying on the province 
So effectively, neither senior government uh, is holding this company accountable. It's a $14.5 billion pipeline, and this government has fined them a total, grand total, grand, grand total of $456,200 to date. That's less than a rounding error, way less than a rounding error. This government is failing to properly penalize CGL, and it's a terrible message to send, especially considering that there are several other pipelines and gas liquefaction plants poised to go ahead under a premier who promised no new fossil fuel infrastructure. This government says it rewards those who play by the rules. However, it is clear, Mr. Speaker, they also reward those who break the rules. Through you, Honourable Speaker, to the Ministry of Energy, Mines and Low Carbon Innovation, will the Minister act to ensure that Coastal GasLink does not further damage critical salmon and steelhead habitat? And how much more damage do they have to inflict before this government finally issues a stop work order? Minister of Environment. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. Um, I reject the premise of, uh, of the member's question. It's simply inaccurate. Um, we take enforcement of uh, regulations and permits and conditions seriously. The Environmental Assessment Office, along with, uh, in some cases, inspectors from the Oil and Gas Commission, in some cases, uh, inspectors from other divisions in uh, the Ministry of Environment, regularly inspect behaviour on the CGL pipeline as well as many other projects. There have been numerous inspections by EAO officers of CGL. There have been orders. There have been meetings. There have been an escalating series of penalties. There are, is consideration being given every time an infraction is found. We entered into a compliance agreement with CGL to raise uh, the level of attention and focus on uh, continued breaches of their permits. There was, in fact, a stop work at one point until corrections, uh, until corrections were made. It is not true that oil and gas commission inspectors did not attend Chlor River. They did, in fact, attend. So did DFO. Uh, I have asked to be regularly briefed on findings of all of the uh, agencies that inspect. Uh, the EAO officers are in regular contact with the Oil and Gas Commission inspectors who do have the responsibility for inspecting the erosion, and we are all awaiting for the analysis by DFO of their findings from their inspection of the Chlor River. Member for Terry White Rock. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Day after day, we raise devastating stories of delays in the healthcare system only to be dismissed by this minister. Last October, the Leader of the Opposition raised the House, raised the issue of Feyre Kruger, a nurse from White Rock who was diagnosed with skin cancer and faced one grueling delay after delay. Because her surgery was delayed in December, the procedure was done with outdated scan results, and it missed a cancer node It was discovered two weeks later. Now Feyre has been undergoing radiation therapy for the past three weeks, but her body's inability to keep food down has caused significant weight loss. As a result, Feyre needs a feeding tube. And she was told that she faced a four-week delay to get that feeding tube. She was also told that if her weight continued to drop, that they would need to stop 
for radiation treatment. If she loses any more weight, this is threatening her life. And it is unimaginable to think that this is happening in our province today. This health minister has known about this case for months. And it requires immediate action today. Will this government, will this premier, will this minister give Feyre and her family a chance and ensure that no other family has to go through something like this that would likely save her life to get a feeding tube, a routine procedure that she has now been told she will take four weeks to get. Minister of Health. Thank you very much, Honourable Speaker. And of course, anyone who's struggling uh, with cancer uh, needs care, deserves care, and gets care in BC. And uh, Honourable Speaker, uh, in this case and in others, and uh, uh, the member will know because uh, I work on issues with him and all members of the House all the time, how deeply everybody in the system cares, including the doctors and nurses and healthcare workers responsible for care in this case. So of course, uh, I'll look into the issues that the member has raised today. And it reminds us of the continuing need to invest in our public health care system, to have more doctors and nurses, more oncologists and surgeons, more supports for people. And that's what we're going to continue uh, to do, Honourable Speaker. So the member will know, because he knows it personally, that when cases are brought to my attention, I uh, work with members all over the House, and I will, of course, work in this case, and I, to the family and everyone involved in dealing with very difficult health care issues for themselves. They have our compassion, and they have our support, and the member will know that all of the people involved in these processes, all of the health care workers involved, behave with that in mind. Member for Prince George Wilmont. Well, thank you uh, to the Minister. To be clear, this situation was raised with the Minister months ago. And it is unbelievable that the Minister thinks that we can continue to bring case after case after case individually to his attention. It is symptomatic of a healthcare system in crisis in British Columbia. Because, in fact, in this province, people are dying on wait lists. And it's not just patients that are suffering, and the minister knows that. There is burnout. And there are reports of toxic workplaces where doctors and nurses face retaliation for speaking out. It is leading healthcare professionals to abandon their jobs and resign across the province. Staffing levels are at critical levels. And yet the minister has today on his desk a proposal from the Canadian Association of Physician Assistants to get some desperately needed help for the people of Port Hardy and elsewhere. I raised that issue with the minister months ago, in fact, almost a year ago. The proposal is supported by the doctors of BC, the First Nations Health Authority, the BC Rural Health Network, and even the MLA for North Island, all of them begging the minister and this government to agree to the proposal and recognize the role that physician assistants can play in the healthcare team. 
Physician assistants are permitted in other provinces, and once again, they can't work here in British Columbia. And they could start to work almost immediately. So knowing that we should have all hands on deck in this province, and that the proposal is widely supported, even by government members, will the Premier, or Penny Ballam, or someone over there, take what is a seemingly immediate step and direct the Health Minister to approve the proposal that will provide desperately needed help? Minister of Health. Thank you, Honourable Speaker, and uh, over the past uh, number of years, um, our government has taken, I think, uh, unprecedented action to build out the health care team. I became Minister of Health, we were last in Canada, last in nurse practitioners. We've more than doubled the number of nurse practitioners practicing in BC, Honourable Speaker. We've built out the health care teams in primary care with allied health workers and mental health and addiction specialists and nurses and nurse practitioners supporting doctors in community. The member, I think, understands that the reason that physician assistants have not been approved in the past in BC is that the previous government reviewed the issue and repeatedly rejected that. They did. That is a fact. That we don't train, we don't train physicians assistants in BC and therefore it's a constrained number. Uh, this is an issue in terms of their licensing and so on that involves the ministry, but it also involves the College of Physicians and Surgeons, and they are looking at that issue right now. But people have to be in this province, have their scope of practice regulated and, and put in place. But when it comes to team-based care, uh, an area where the province was deficient in 2017, we've made unprecedented progress. Opposition House Leader. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Uh, well, on the uh, question of physician assistants uh, practicing in British Columbia, the member from Prince George Belmont raised this with the, the minister uh, about a year ago. And the minister said that he would look at it. And, and I think uh, what British Columbians are expecting and what medical professionals are expecting is that the minister is going to, to work on this expeditiously. Uh, we need these, these, these physician assistants to be added to the healthcare system to add the capacity that, that's needed. Um, but Mr. Speaker, I'll move to a different, a different matter. Uh, doctors should be practicing medicine in this province they, as opposed to being uh, muzzled by the NDP. Uh, the people of Port Hardy will soon be down to their last doctor uh, in their emergency room of their hospital, Dr. Alex Nateros. But instead of giving uh, Port Hardy's last doctor uh, the physician assistant that he has been asking for, uh, he has been suspended. Now, what did this doctor do recently? Well, he, uh, he called for this NDP government to be held accountable for the collapse of, of BC's healthcare system. Now, this is the most high-profile uh, muzzling of a healthcare professional in the, in the province, but let's remember that hundreds of nurses and doctors have also been silenced from speaking out about the, 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 the quality of care in, in, this, in, in the province and the collapse of BC's healthcare system. So my question to the Premier is this, will he direct the Minister of Health uh, to stop his muzzling of healthcare workers and will, uh, as importantly, will he ensure that the people of Port Hardy are not left without a single doctor in the emergency room of their hospital? Minister of Health. Well, um, the Island Health Authority, Honourable Speaker, has um, a Director of Medicine who's an outstanding doctor who people in all communities on Vancouver Island will know, Dr. Ben Williams. 
And Dr. Ben Williams, in that position, has a legal obligation when he becomes aware of patient cases that must be investigated to take that action in the name of patient safety. And that's what he does, Honorable Speaker. And that's what occurred in this place. I refer the Honorable Member to the detailed response that Dr. Williams has put in place. What ha happened in this case has nothing to do, Honorable Speaker, nothing to do with the public comments made by anybody about the public health care system. It has nothing to do with it. And to suggest that it does, Honorable Speaker, is just false. And I go further, Honorable Speaker. What has happened since 2017 is the implementation of all of the recommendations of the review by the Ombudsperson of Health Firings in BC. The ch change in the law brought in by the then Attorney General, now Premier, on the Public Interest Disclosure Act, and ensurance that people can speak out in this province. That is something that we passed in this House, that the opposition, I believe, supported notwithstanding their conduct in government in the health firings matter. Honourable Speaker, we take it very seriously. Everyone has the right to speak out. Everyone should have that right to speak out. Their speaking out makes the public health care system better. But when s senior doctors do their job, Honourable Speaker, to protect patients, and the member doesn't know what it's about, he doesn't have the slightest clue, and he makes allegations about Dr. Williams and his actions, Honourable Speaker. That is, Honourable Speaker, not something I agree with. Member for Kamloops, North Thompson. Thank you, Mr. Speaker. Time and again, we hear in this place about the toxic work environments within health authorities and within individual health facilities, from doctors, from nurses, from all sorts of health professionals working in those facilities. Time and again, this minister brushes those concerns off. That type of an environment gets fostered from the top down, Mr. Speaker. We've heard how people that are raising issues get threatened with muzzling, threatened with suspensions. So let's go talk to a nurse for crying out loud. So, so Mr. Speaker, let, let's look at why those healthcare professionals feel that that is happening. And let's see what happens if you're in administrative side of healthcare and how this government and this minister treats you. Dr. Albert de Villiers, the former chief medical officer for interior health, has just been convicted of sexual assault and sexual interference of a child. He's still awaiting trial on a few more charges for different incidents. It's extremely disturbing to everyone to learn that after he was charged in June 2021, he was allowed to return to work on October 4th, 2021, where he continued to collect a six-figure salary. No suspension there. Under this government, hard-working doctors and nurses that speak out are facing swift justice and suspensions, but a vile criminal like Dr. Devalier was simply reassigned and allowed to continue to work and receive pay. Mr. Speaker, Mr. Speaker, to the Premier, why did the Ministry of Health why does the Ministry of Health continue to foster a toxic healthcare workplace 
by muzzling and suspending frontline doctors, nurses, and healthcare professionals while protecting employment of administration accused and then convicted of something as egregious as sexual assault of children. Uh, Dr. De Villiers has been convicted and he no longer works for Interior Health as appropriate, Honourable Speaker. And the members asked questions about uh, the case of another doctor and have, I think, put into question the ethics of a senior doctor whose responsibility it is to protect patients. That is always what our senior doctors do in British Columbia. And I think to, I th I think to attempt to juxtapose those issues is, uh, is uh, disgraceful. We have taken steps, Honourable Speaker, repeated steps. You know, Honourable Speaker, they, they, they think, Honourable Speaker, they think that asking these questions of this seriousness requires heckling, Honourable Speaker. It does not. It does not, Honourable Speaker. It requires... Here they, here they go again, Honourable Speaker. Dr. De Villiers rightfully is gone, Honourable Speaker, as he should be. With respect to, uh, with res Honourable Speaker, Honourable Speaker, um, as noted, Honourable Speaker, people do have the rights, do have the rights, Honourable Speaker. People, of course, do have the right, will always have the right to speak out in our democracy, and that right has been assured by legislative action of this chamber, and they will continue to do so in our province as they should. Honorable Speaker, in our public health care system, Honorable Speaker, well, the, the member is just wrong. He's just wrong as to the facts. And, uh, and to make such serious allegations when you're wrong speaks of the opposition and not the government, Honorable Speaker. We have... Honourable Speaker, people who are watching on TV should know that they're just uh, heckling away, so I'm just waiting for them to stop, Honourable Speaker. Uh, I think, Honourable Speaker, Honourable Speaker, um, we expect our public health officials to act with the highest standards, and they do, Honourable Speaker, and we will continue to support people who need care in British Columbia with unprecedented measures to do so. But we'll also support when people are doing their jobs, like Dr. Ben Williams. We will support them in their efforts to protect public safety, and we'll continue to do so.